As we've come together this Lord's Day morning, I know it's a time of great blessing and a time of great privilege for all of us who have assembled today. And we're thankful for every person, our membership and our visitors, our guests who've come our way today. It's our genuine hope that as you and I strive to worship God in truth and in spirit, John 4, 24, that not only will the cause and the name of God be glorified and magnified, but that we each can be encouraged in the most holy faith and that we shall be better equipped and encouraged to walk in the way of faithfulness. You may well have noted that in our lesson text this morning, drawn from Psalm 29, verse number 2, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. There's a rather magnificent set of statements in that passage, not the least of which is an encouragement, a reminder that you and I are to give unto Him that which is appropriately deserving by Him. And in that course of that, that will involve our worship, offering to Him an appropriate, an enthusiastic, a motivated worship that in fact would be according to that which is His being. As I mentioned, thankful for each person that's here today, and I hope for the next few moments that we can reflect somewhat on October's controversial matters. You and I set course back in January of this year to look, take one of the lessons each month and look at some of the features that sometimes might be viewed as controversial. And so over the course of the year, we've looked at quite a few of them. And today, our issue will be connected to worship, the very thing in which you and I are now engaged. I would suspect that there is a rather wide discrepancy of consideration about that topic. I would be quick to say that although men may see matters like these as controversial, God's Word really doesn't. God has simply, throughout the nature of our discussion, so often pointed out in directness and in loving consideration what the Word of God has to say. That will be no less true of the matters concerning worship today. Why don't we take a first slide or two and look at some of the issues about introductory issues related to worship. I suppose that if you and I were to take a poll of, say, a thousand regular random people, may or may not be religious, but just ask them, when I say the word church, what's the first thing that you think of? Many of them would probably say something like worship, assembly, get-togethers, things like that. Well, what do you and I ask about what the Bible would have to say about something such as that? As you can see near the top of that slide, the word worship actually occurs quite often in the Bible, in the King James Version at least, 198 times. Of that nearly 200 occurrences, you get the feeling that many of the presentations in many of the particular contexts have a little bit of latitude to them. In the Old Testament, the primary word that we seemingly encounter is the word shakah. And in this translation, you and I can directly appreciate the meaning of that word to be to fall prostrate before, to make obeisance to, to do reverence to. And we again encounter many cases in the Old Testament. We read one of them in Psalm 29 too. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That was a commandment then. And not much has changed. In fact, you'll notice Jesus Himself said in Matthew 4 verse 10, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. The discussion of worship from the Old Testament is certainly an interesting one, but the New Testament word is principally the word proskuneo. 
as you can see on the slide, it has a very similar meaning to the Old Testament one. To kiss the hand toward, to do reverence to. And when you and I encounter words such as these, it reminds us of the understanding of humility and lowliness as one directs reverence to one perceived as greater than he. There is one far greater than you and me. Almighty, perfect in so many ways, majestic in every way. Isn't it true in the Revelation He is called the Omnipotent? Surely in that connection you'll notice what then follows. You may have an interest in the very first time this word occurs in the New Testament. It's found in Matthew chapter 2. Early on in that chapter you remember that it was an interesting scene about the birth of Jesus really. And in regard to that, you may recall Herod had a desire to come to know where the baby was going to be so that he could come and worship him. Herod used that word. The word literally carries forth the idea of acts of reverence directed to God. Now Herod, you see, didn't have an interest in that. He wanted to kill the baby Jesus. But that word came to be appreciative of the fact of acts of reverence directed to God. Today, you and I have assembled for that purpose. The joyous offering on our part of those acts of reverence directed to Him. As you and I think about that for the next few moments this morning, there are many things in the Bible would urge us to appreciate about worship, understanding not only some of its particulars, but the overall aim and the overall goal of it, and so on this next slide. I've entitled this one, Misappreciation. An attempt, again, to give thought to what this controversy, at least in the mind of some, might well be. The Word of God teaches so strongly the importance of worship. That was true in both the Old Testament as well as the New. I've already invited you to notice those two verses that occur at the top of that slide. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in truth and in spirit. There is a reminder. There is a necessity. There's an essentiality connected to both worship that's done in truth as well as done in spirit. To lack in one is just as severe as to lack in the other one. And the Lord used that word must as a reminder that this has to be the case in order for that worship to be pleasing, in order for that worship to be that which it ought to be. As we've already noted, in that Matthew 4 verse 10 text, that was in the scene of that rather unforgettable passage in which the devil was tempting Jesus. You may recall that on one of those occasions he said, I'll give you all the kingdoms that you see if you'll just fall down and worship me. And the Lord rather quickly rebuked him and urged him to flee because he pointed out, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Thus, the devil is certainly not to be worshipped. Angels are not even to be worshipped. Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9. And certainly, things of our material world are not to be worshipped. The God of heaven is the object, should be the sole object of our worship. I suppose in regard to that, you may notice about the middle of that slide, I make these statements these reminders, these points of consideration. 
You and I know quite well that worship primarily is an individual thing in the sense that we each are to be engaged in it. And yet we do it as a corporate body. As the Pippin Church of Christ assembles Sunday morning or Sunday night, we individually offer unto God the heartfelt appreciation of our being, the thankfulness of our consideration, and we mean it with all of our being. But yet, we have the opportunity to engage in those acts with others of like precious faith. And for that reason, we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5.19. So although we're primarily worshiping God, what an encouragement we are to others. What an example of godliness we're able to see it. What a consideration of motivation we can be. In Colossians 3.16, we're even taught there that as we teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it is such that we sing with grace in our heart to the Lord. So we're singing to the Lord, but we teach and admonish each other. It's a beautiful thing to appreciate that worship has this dual dimension. It has an upward dimension in which we connect to God, but it has a horizontal dimension in which we encourage and bless one another. That's a beautiful thing in the Christian religion, isn't it? For that reason, and in continuation of it, there's a temptation. And this is one that I invite you to notice again on that slide. There's a temptation to suppose that being in a given place where these acts of worship are done is acceptable. May I say that again? That if I merely go to the place wherein these matters take place then that's okay. I hope we're all in agreement that that's not okay. I could come to the services wherein there are others there who are singing and praying and participating in worship as the Word of God clarifies it. And yet I could sleep through the whole thing. Or I can be playing on a phone. Or I can be daydreaming about lunch. Or I can have my mind beset by the worries of the day at work tomorrow and a hundred other things. And the fact is, I didn't worship. Others did, but I didn't. Because my mind wasn't engaged in it. My heart wasn't where the worship was taking place. My heart was elsewhere. And that kind of danger is, again, one that has troubled a fair amount of Christianity, I suppose, over the centuries. Because isn't it true that worship can be sinful? May I say again, it can be. 1 Kings 12 verse 30 exactly says that. There were those at that time who participated in this set of activities and the inspired record was that that which took place was sinful. But that is, you see, it in the only place that we read about something like that. Isn't it a strong consideration to remind us that worship is not a passive activity? Sometimes there's much said about spectators. And I know that you and I are familiar with that. We go to a ball game and we sit in the stands and our children are out there playing on the court. Or we might go to a concert and we are in the audience and there are others on the stage playing the instruments or participating in the other activities. But isn't it true the Word of God shouts so loudly that worship is not a spectator activity? I can't just come and watch. 
That's one reason why choirs are not approved by the Word of God. I know that there are religious organizations that may well encourage individuals to sing, but all the while there's a choir standing over in the corner or up behind, and they're the ones doing the singing, and everybody else is watching primarily. And the Bible doesn't endorse this. We are told, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it's a beautiful, powerful, collective activity in which we are the ones engaged. We're not watching somebody else. You could just as soon watch somebody else sing as you could watch them pray, as you could watch them give, as you could watch them listen to the lesson. It's all the same. The Bible knows nothing about this spectator kind of worship. Some might call it a proxy kind of worship. Isn't it true that we longingly desire to open the bowels of our hearts and express to God our heartfelt appreciation and the magnitude of our feelings toward Him for what He did for us? It's not our interest to watch somebody else do that. We want to do it. And we are convicted in light of that great, great work. You may notice you're at the bottom of that slide, I say this. When you and I then reflect upon the attribute of worship, the consideration that's related to it, again, the inspired writer had these words to say in Psalm 29 two: Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Wouldn't we all agree He is due it? That He is worthy of it? That He deserves it? That it being glory... And then the latter part of it then says, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Our worship, you and I desire it to be cataloged in holiness, to be directed in holiness, to be absolutely presented before Him in the mindset of holiness. The word holy, you see, means to be separated, to be consecrated, to be separated into a holy work. And so it is that when we come together like this, you and I easily observe that we wish not the world to encumber worship in such a way that it makes it more worldly than it is godly. You remember the Corinthians struggled with this in 1 Corinthians 11. In the partaking of the Lord's Supper, they each brought their own meal. So there were some people having pinto beans and cornbread. There were some others having pumpkin pie and banana pudding. And Paul said, this is not the Lord's Supper. That's not the purpose, nor is it the particular Lord's Supper. You need to eat at the house when it comes to that kind of thing. And yet you and I realize what Paul admonished of them was, in that eating was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He gave it to them and said, This is my body. It's not just a common meal. And furthermore, in light of that fruit of the vine, he said, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, Matthew 26, 28. Again, it's not like drinking Coke or milk or water. It has a significance far beyond that. And thus, the Corinthians were admonished, You ought not be abusing worship this way. Isn't it interesting then to notice some of the issues that trouble the ancient world? can still trouble the minds of those upon earth today. As we transition to a continuing discussion of those points, why don't we then give some thought about some of the attributes that the Word of God would share with us concerning the things we do in worship.
Worship should be the highlight of our week. It ought to be the very thing that is so meaningful, so pertinent, and so essential that we long for it, we yearn for it, and we delight to participate in it. So think about the singing. We've already noted these two verses in which I've asked you to consider. But could I remind you of that second one again, that Colossians 3.16 passage, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you and I desire to allow the sweetness of that word to rest in our heart, to motivate and lead us into paths of behavior. He then specifies this one, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. So you'll notice we teach and we admonish. And that word admonish means to warn. And so those in the assembly whose heart is not right with God, the singing at least in part should admonish them. We sang that song a moment ago. Hand in hand we walk each day. Anyone in the assembly who's not able to do that should have had their pulse rate get a little bit higher as we sang that. They should have been at least in a mindset to think what I'm missing and what they're enjoying. The blessing connected to that kind of life. And isn't it true? Can two walk together except they be agreed? In the words of Amos 3 verse 3, as you reflect even further on that matter of singing, aren't we told in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, that that singing is to be such that it's characterized this way, I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding. That word spirit has already occurred, hasn't it, in our study of John 4, 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit. And yet, here it is again, I'll sing with the Spirit. When our song leaders lead us in songs, isn't it a delightful sound unto God? When we are singing in spirit, when we're singing in light of the features of our discussion, and doesn't it remind us that to sing in spirit means there should be some enthusiasm. There should be somewhat, you see, of a desire to participate. Does that characterize your singing and mine? I hope it does. To sing like we mean it. To sing like we're thankful unto God for what He's done for us. And we're excited to praise Him for those blessings. As Paul made that affirmation to the church at Corinth, he highlighted to them, I will sing this way. And certainly he encouraged them to do the same. You'll notice one last thing about that point on that particular slide. I realize full well some of us don't have the kind of voices that others may have. That is to say, others perhaps can sing so beautifully, and others can sing with such marvelous character and strength and tonation, whether that be you or me or not. The Bible doesn't demand that we sing in the beautiness of what man might say. He urges all of us to sing. And therefore... Whether I can sing great or not, that doesn't remove from me the expectation on God's behalf that I do it. And so I hope you and I will sing with the fervor and with the excitement of our heart. What about the second one? Praying. It's true, isn't it, that when we assemble, one of the acts in which we engage is that of prayer. In fact, we do that several times during the course of the assembly. You may notice in Acts 2 verse 42, the church on the day of her establishment... 
was setting course of that reality. Aren't we reminded there that they, those first disciples, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. And so they prayed. And yet as you and I participate in that as well, what an opportunity it is. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, We may have boldness to come to the throne of grace. You see, we can approach God with a degree of confidence because of the nature of His Son. In 1 Corinthians 14, 15, that very same verse we noted earlier, prayer is now mentioned. And Paul said, I'll pray with the Spirit and I'll pray with the understanding. May I suggest that in our prayers, we too should make every effort to pray with Spirit, with enthusiasm, with energy, with a bit, a bit of excitement but also to pray, you see, with understanding. That surely means that we pay attention to what the gentleman is wording as he leads us in prayer, and we are able to say amen, 1 Corinthians 14, 16, at the close of it. Doesn't that indicate to us that our collective prayers might lead us to say this, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We believe that. We fully believe that. Jesus pointed out this example in Matthew 6. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Sixty-nine words. That's all it is. Prayers need not be lengthy. When we approach the God of heaven, the, the, the characteristic of the prayer is not connected directly to its length. It's connected to many other things besides that. May you and I then, in the urgency of the matter, longingly participate in prayer, knowing that God anxiously awaits the prayers of His children, and they ascend around the throne of God like sweet-smelling incense. Revelation 5, verses 8 and 9. As you continue, though, thinking about those matters of worship with me, what about the preaching part of worship? The thing in which you and I are engaged now. You and I know quite well that the God of heaven is sovereign. He's great. He's the creator of this universe. And He is deserving of the worship that you and I would extend to his, in, in His direction. But may I say, when it comes to the preaching, we are lifting high the banner of the Word which He has revealed. Because it's His Word, not mine or yours. No association of people on earth. It's His communication to us. And there's no way that we're going to know what His will is unless it's by the appreciation of what He's told us. Because His ways are far above our ways. His thoughts are far above our thoughts. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. And it's only because of what He's revealed that we can rest assured in that knowledge and we can act in behalf of it. It is for that reason on that slide I mentioned the crucial place of the Word of God. Paul told Timothy these unforgettable words in 2 Timothy 4.2, Preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. 
Timothy was not encouraged to preach the fine logistics of the Greek language. He wasn't encouraged to preach the fullness and the matter of the Roman culture. There were a lot of learned people in ancient Greece, but they were not to be the prime subjects of the sermons. The Word of God and that alone. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, 1 Peter 4.11. Paul would say it like this in 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 1. Brethren, when I came among you, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul's source of instruction, the base, if you please, of the sermons he preached, was first and foremost Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and the faith that's built upon Him. And today, isn't it true, we need double doses of this. Our world offers tribulation, John 16, 13. This world offers uncertainty and doubt, but God brings before us the message of rejoicing in the confidence of the faith which is made available to you and me. And thus, in the preaching, we desire and we all long for the Word of God, knowing more about it, listening to it in exposition presented, and in so doing, we see the blessing connected, as you'll notice in those verses, to the very thing the Apostle Paul did, speaking the Word of God, Acts 20, verse 7. The understanding that goes with 1 Corinthians 9, 14 and following, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Now when Paul came to Corinth, many things no doubt he could have said, but the only thing needful, the only thing incumbent upon him was to preach the message of the gospel. What about the next one? The contribution. I know there are many who might suppose that monetary matters are beneath the dignity of the church, but that's not so. The church needs money to carry out its business, whether that be business of benevolence, whether that be the business otherwise connected to the work of the church. And yet, God has made statement about where that money is to come from. It comes from you and me. It comes from the free will contribution. It was true, wasn't in the Old Testament, that God desired a free will offering, Leviticus 1 verse 3. And today, you and I are admonished to give as we have been prospered. Those words of 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 and 2 encourage us to then reflect with mightiness upon the degree to which God has blessed us, and we return to Him the prosperity in proportion to that same thing. The statement that's made in that passage helps us notice then in 2 Corinthians 9 verses 6 and 7 that there's planning involved in that. Notice again how the Word of God says to lay by Him in store as God hath prospered Him. Thus, you and I have already made plans. We know what we're going to give. We have set aside those funds and those monies, and delightedly, we look forward to presenting them back to the Lord so He can use them in His kingdom. As we do that with thanksgiving, what a joy. No better thing can ever be done with that dollar bill or that 20 or more than that than that. The devil can use it in a lot of ways in the, in, in the world, but... Isn't it true how well God can use it? So far as we have given some thought to the preaching and the praying, 
and the characteristics connected to the singing as well as the contribution, we leave until last to give some thought to the Lord's Supper. On this next slide, we will speak somewhat briefly about it this way. You and I recall it was the night that our Lord was betrayed in which He had just a few hours earlier instituted what we now call the Lord's Supper. It is called that, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. And so we do not do it injustice to refer to it that way. But oh, how interesting it is to notice that as the Word of God describes it, what an obligation rests upon your heart and mine. For never must we take it unworthily. 1 Corinthians 11 points out that the person who takes it unworthily eats and drinks damnation to his soul. And that's serious, isn't it? For isn't it an indication that if one does not properly respect the Lord's Supper, if one does not look upon it with the integrity and the character and the significance that goes with it, then without doubt the other attributes of the person's life are not as they should be. They do not appreciate the sacrifice of the Christ as they ought. They do not understand the fullness connected to the church as they ought. And without doubt, they are in serious danger of departing this life not ready to meet the Maker. And yet the Lord's Supper is such a sweet moment. When we take that unleavened bread, and Jesus Himself would say in Matthew 26, This is my body. That's the way He worded it. Now it's clear He wasn't referring literally to some portion of His hand or His leg. It was a representation, true and sure, of the sacrifice that was about to be made, His body. And He urged them to take it in remembrance of Him. But following the, that, He also took the, that cup, which contained fruit of the vine. And He said, This is my blood. Now one more time, we know He hadn't punctured His hand and allowed the blood to run into the cup. That's not what He meant. But that blood that was represented by that fruit of the vine, was to be a memorial of His blood. And in so doing, a reminder of the sacrifice He made. Isn't it true, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission? Hebrews 9.22 Sins cannot be forgiven without blood. Sins cannot be purged without blood. And so in Hebrews 9.14, through His blood, you and I are able to have a conscience that's clean and a service that's pure. And so in this Lord's Supper, may we not do so with undue haste. May we not do so with undue disrespect. For again, if we take that fruit of the vine, or if we take that unleavened bread unworthily, it's a serious reminder that all is not well with us. You may notice one last thing about that particular point there would be this one. As Paul admonished the Corinthian brethren, he encouraged them then to do it differently than what they had been doing and to recognize that we do proclaim the Lord's death by this until He come. We are making a bold and declarative statement. We believe in Jesus. We believe that He died. And He died this way, just as the Bible declares, and these memorials serve as an unending consideration of reminder and we're going to dutifully participate in it every Lord's Day. 
The bottom part on that slide then is this one. As you and I have looked briefly at each one of these acts of worship, it does remind us about the aspect of spirit that's connected to each one of them. Reminding us that we again aren't spectators, but we participated the singing, and we participated the praying, and we participate in the contribution. And may I say, you even participate in the aspect we call the preaching. It may be there's a gentleman here doing the talking, but each of us have the blessedness of being blessed by the attribute of what's said. There's no aspect of the worship that's a passive one. As you close that slide then, of course, the Lord's Supper must be done in a way in which we joyously participate. I use that word joy because isn't it true that that's a reminder of the way the Lord, in fact, set it forth. In Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, we are taught there that for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. All of that perhaps leads me to this next slide, which is a slide of conclusion. Although worship might well be a controversial matter, I suppose in the light of some and in the light of many writings, it really isn't controversial at all in the Bible. The nature of worship is so keen, so moving, so compelling, and so motivational, and it is something in which we delightfully participate. I hope each of us are motivated in light of being a part of worship as we offer unto God the heartfelt nature of how our feelings are toward Him. This very day, as you and I examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, an activity admonished upon us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Then at this point, would you and I give careful thought to our worship? Have I been worshiping God as I should? Or am I just arriving at the building and going through the motions for about an hour and leaving? If so, I did not worship. I might think I did, but I didn't. God demanded in the Old Testament that their mind and their heart was engaged in that which they did. You may recall in Isaiah chapter 1, they were bringing the offerings. And they were offering them. But God said, I'm not happy about it. Your heart isn't right. He told them the same thing in Malachi chapter 1. I would ask today, I hope that you and I then will appreciate the sweetness of worship and we will look forward to participating with the understanding that God expects that. It's true that if you have never become a Christian today, don't you want to be able to worship God in the beauty of holiness? And today, we could make assistance as you become a New Testament Christian. You do that, you see, by believing on the Lord with all of your heart. Repent of your sins make confession of the sheer greatness of His name, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you have known that way of life, but as of today you're not faithful to the Lord, then your worship is not acceptable in His sight, and you need to make some changes. The Bible calls that repentance. He welcomes you. He implores of you. He urges you. Because after all, isn't it true that you want to be right when the day of judgment comes? Today, if we could help in that way, you are in fact demanded that you repent of those sins and make confession of them. And as you do that, He will forgive you. And you again can offer unto God 
the powerful attribute of holiness and worship which the Word of God describes. Brother Larry has chosen this song of encouragement. If we could be of assistance now, won't you come while we stand and sing?